the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, for all your goodness, we do give you thanks for the goodness of brothers and sisters in Christ, for the goodness of families who love us, for the goodness of homes and jobs and communities that are safe and sane. Lord, I pray that we would care for all of these things that you have given to us as a blessing to us, but that we would be stewards of them and that we would further your work of peace and justice in this world, that we would be community builders and family growers. Lord, I pray that we would love one another well, that we would love the unlovable and difficult in your name. I pray as well that we would follow you wherever you would lead us. I pray that you would lead us, that you would show us where you would have us be. I pray that you would give us eyes to see your glory and ears to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that have uh, a longing for the things that you long for. I pray that you would give us appetites that turn away from the things that you find offensive. Lord, may our lives be more like Christ. May our speech be more honoring to you and helpful to others. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the glory forever. Amen. So it is good to see uh, all of you here this morning. I really miss uh, HVPC when when I'm not here. Last Sunday, Ava and Rosie and Mia and I were at a PCA church in Durham, North Carolina. And on the previous Sunday, Ava and I were at an Anglican church in Florence, South Carolina. That was all part of traveling to and from Orlando, Florida, where I took another class at Reformed Theological Seminary, where I'm working on my Doctor of Ministry degree. RTS, as the school sometimes calls itself, was founded a little over 50 years ago. And in these past five decades, this school has played an important role in the resurgence of Reformed theology, the theology of John Calvin, the theology of the Puritans, the theology of the Westminster Confession. In 1966, when the school started, you would have been hard-pressed to find even a handful of American evangelicals who described themselves as Calvinist or as Reformed. Even the Presbyterian Church, which has deep roots in Reformed Christianity, had abandoned that tradition in the 1960s, adopting in 1967 the so-called Confession of 67, which is more a piece of theological poetry than a robust statement of Reformed theology. In 2010... 
Mark Oppenheimer, writing for the New York Times, declared that American evangelicalism is in the midst of a Calvinist revival. Today, many of the leading thinkers in the American church, people like uh, Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul and John Piper and Mark Driscoll, these people are thoroughly reformed in their thinking and in their commitments. This broad, global movement embraces Presbyterianism and Episcopalianism and Baptist churches and free churches as well. And RTS has been a piece of this pan-denominational revival. For me, it's been very exciting to be at RTS. I've been favorably impressed by all of the professors that I've had thus far. Each one of them has been both a pastor and a professor so that their scholarship isn't trapped in an ivory tower but is rooted in the life of ordinary congregations. I've been favorably impressed and challenged by my fellow students, smart, inventive, hardworking, godly. It seems like all of these guys have churches bigger than mine. And I've been challenged and invigorated by the readings I'm doing for my classes. Each class in a doctor of ministry program, and this is standardized across the country, for each class there's 2,000 pages of required reading, which means I have less time to read detective novels, but I am learning lots of stuff, stuff that is uh, that I keep thinking that I should have learned back when I was in seminary the first time. So it was another good class at RTS uh, this past month. This time I took a course on Paul's Epistle to the Romans. It is a rich book, as you know. It contains the very heart of the gospel. If you want to understand what the good news is all about, why that first generation of Christians was so willing to be martyred for their faith, the answer lies in the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. In the 12 years that I've been here at HVPC, I've shied away from preaching through Romans. I haven't felt like I've earned the right to preach this great book. It's not a book for a young preacher. It's so theological and dense and filled with treasure that while I can't resist every once in a while dipping into it, to actually preach it from beginning to end is an intimidating task. However, now that I've taken this course, I think I'm ready for Romans come January. My final paper for the Romans class is due to the professor on October 31st, 2017. Some of you know that that day is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31, 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses for debate to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And that started a revolution in the Western Church, and we are descendants of that revolution. So I want to thank all of you who are making it possible for me to work on my Doctor of Ministry degree. It is valuable work. It is making a difference in my ministry here at HVPC. If all goes well... In the summer of 2021, my wife will start calling me the Reverend Dr. Daniel Morrison. The rest of you can keep calling me Pastor Dan. I also want to thank Stephen Clark, there he is, and the Reverend Christy Bruce for ably filling the pulpit while I've been out of town. In larger churches that have an assistant pastor, it is no problem for 
the pastor to be out of the pulpit every once in a while, but in churches with just a solo pastor, it is a real blessing to have other people in the congregation who are able and willing to step up and proclaim God's word to God's people. So thank you very much. This morning, I have given the title to the sermon... When Jesus asked for his glory back, comma, or comma, don't go without God's glory. And that long title might be a clue that I really want to preach two sermons this morning to make up for having been out of the pulpit. But I'm not going to do that. I will, however, touch briefly on two preachable topics that are linked by the glory of God. I want to begin by talking about the glory of Christ about how he had the full glory of the Godhead in eternity past, about how he laid down that full glory when he was incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, about how as the earthly ministry of Jesus drew to a close, Jesus asked his Father for his rightful glory back, and about how Jesus Christ now reigns in glory and will soon come back for us in all of his glory. That's sermon number one. And once I'm done with that, I want to talk about how in this life, you and I should never take a step without the presence of God's glory. Wherever we go, we should go in the shining glory of God. That's sermon number two. So let's begin by talking about when Jesus asked for his glory back. At the Last Supper, after the meal is over, after Jesus has given his long sermon, which we call the Farewell Discourse, Jesus begins to pray. He looks up into the heaven and he says, Father, the time has come, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. After 33 years of life on earth, Jesus' hour has come. The hour of his betrayal, of his arrest, of his trial, of his humiliation, of his crucifixion, of his death. In this hour, Jesus would be betrayed by one of his disciples and thrice denied by another disciple. In this hour, Jesus would be mocked and humiliated by the religious leaders in the Jewish temple. In this hour, Jesus would be crushed. And broken by the might of the Roman Empire, in this hour Jesus would bear the sins of the world as a sacrificial lamb. In this hour, Jesus would be extinguished and laid stone cold dead in a borrowed tomb. In this hour, defeat and humiliation and death would reign. Even the noonday sky went dark as the light of the world was snuffed. In This hour, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What a prayer. Glory is one of those words in Scripture that's reserved for God. Glory, kavod in Hebrew, doxa in Greek. Glory is the weight of God. It's the power of God. It's the shining splendor of God. In this hour, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. This isn't a prayer that we can pray. For all glory belongs to God, and anyone who claims to be glorious claims to be God. This 
very prayer is another example of Jesus unambiguously claiming equality with God. John's Gospel, which of course was written after Jesus was glorified, which was written after the disciples finally understood who they had been dealing with these for these three years, John's Gospel begins so beautifully, singing the praises and the glory of Jesus. It reads like a hymn. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. In eternity past, the son was with the father, distinct but inseparable, perfectly glorious, creating the world filled with light and life. No one is more beautiful than Jesus. Everything good and right in this world is of His making. The very pulse in your body, the vibrations in your cells are the resonance of the life that He has created. Some people talk about taking Jesus into their hearts, which is okay. But my goodness, Jesus is in our very DNA. He is our life, which is why we honor life and cherish life. Glorious Jesus, present with the Father and the Holy Spirit in a threefold communion from all eternity, outside of time, before time, creating time. And this glorious Jesus, because of His deep, deep love for His creation, comes into the world... And lives in true humility. Jesus laid aside his glory to be with us. He gave up his privilege and his prerogatives for us. Now there are a whole bunch of reasons why he did this. And it has to do with how salvation works. But I want to lift up just one of those reasons. Why he set aside his rightful glory to live a humble life. Because that one reason is a lesson for us. Jesus lived a humble life to be an example to us. The only way for us to live holy lives, lives that are pleasing to God, is through humility. And that's because the only way for a human to live in authentic relationship with God is to live humbly. If I see God for who He is... If I see who I am, then the only thing I can do is to be humble. The proud person is just disconnected from God. Because if we catch just the slightest glimpse of the glory of God, what can we do but fall flat on our faces in the dust? And our humility toward God allows us to have sane and loving and just relationships with other people. If we are haughty and arrogant and dismissive toward other people, what does this mean but that we don't know God? Jesus, who was perfectly glorious from all eternity, 
shed that glory to come to us, to be an example for us, to teach us, and ultimately to die for us. And on the eve of his final humiliation, on the eve of his death, Jesus asks his father for his glory back. And then three days later, Jesus rises from the grave and he's invested with even even greater glory. Philippians chapter 2, which is an admonition for Christian humility... Philippians chapter 2 connects the humility of Christ with his all-surpassing glory. Here's how it reads. First, the instruction to Christians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest But each of you looking to the interest of the other. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's sermon number one. In Exodus chapter 33, we see Moses talking to God. God has given him the job of leading the children of Israel. Leading a church with 200 people is a daunting task. Everyone has their own ideas and their own agendas Because of our different histories and because of our different experiences in life, each one of us has our own ideas about what would make the perfect church. And yet, for a church to be a church, the saints have to pull together. They have to work together. They have to move in a coordinated way, in a unified direction. Leadership is the most challenging part of the work of a pastor. Preaching and pastoral care and administration are all easier than getting people to pull in unison toward a common goal. But as hard as it is, that leadership is part of my ordination and part of my calling here at HVPC. So I am deeply sympathetic toward poor Moses, who didn't have just 200 saints to shepherd, but had perhaps 200,000 or maybe 2 to 3 million people to coordinate. Oy vey. Not only was there the difficulty of the large number of people, but Moses knew that the road ahead was going to be filled with difficulties. With deserts, with giants, with walled cities, with armed enemies at every side. Given the difficulties of the task, Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. And so is a special favor to Moses. God shows him his glory, shows him his presence. 
The glory of God, of course, is so overwhelming that no man could look at it and live. And so God sticks Moses into the cleft of a rock, a crack or a cave in the side of a mountain, and then God passes by. Moses isn't allowed to see God's face. That would be too much. But he sees his back, and that's enough. All of our lives are complicated. All of us are faced with difficult situations and hard decisions. All of us face giants and enemies and opposition. And none of us should take a single step in our pilgrimage without the presence of God going with us. We really should imitate Moses in this way. Think of the glory of God as a powerful spotlight on a darkened stage. That light illuminates one circle, one oval on the floor of the stage, one cone of light rising from that circle or oval, and all of the rest is dark. The actor steps into that circle. He steps out of darkness and into light. Now, in the theater, the light follows the actor. But in life, we, the actors, follow the light. Wherever God's glory is, wherever God's presence is, that's where we need to step. In case you forgot the story of how the exodus unfolds, God does not follow Moses. Moses follows God. God's presence precedes the Israelites each step of the way, and they follow his light. Here's the reality of our lives. Some places are in God's light, and some are not. Some conversations are filled with God's light, and some are not. Some projects we undertake are filled with God's light, and some are not. Some relationships are filled with God's light, and some are not. Some websites are filled with God's light, and some are not. Some words we speak are filled with God's light, and some are not. Some thoughts that we harbor and savor are filled with God's light, and some are not. It is a very simple self-diagnostic test that can be wonderfully helpful in this life. Is the presence of God... In this place. Is the glory of God in about what, in what I'm about to say? Is the presence of God in this project? Is the glory of God in these thoughts? Ask those questions and you have a simple rule for godly living. Many of us say a prayer before we eat. I hope we all do. I heard someone say, I don't remember now who it was, that if we can offer a word of thanks before something that we're about to do or partake in, that that's a pretty good sign that that something is godly. That that something is worth the time and the attention of a follower of Christ. There are some activities, some conversations, some indulgences that we can say beforehand, thank you God for this simple pleasure. And there are others where such a prayer would seem blasphemous, where the words would get stuck in our throats. We know the difference. 
And that's because of the presence of God that we, uh, that we sense. Moses called to lead the children of Israel from Egypt into the promised land refuses to take even one step unless the glory of God, unless the presence of God go before him. Moses refuses to take a step without God because he knows that he is dead meat. If he takes off on this journey without the protection and the blessing and the glory of God, I think that you and I should be at least as cautious as Moses. Certainly none of us is as great a person as Moses was. So we too shouldn't take a step in this pilgrimage that we call life without the presence of God's glory in each thing that we do. Alright, that's sermon number two. So, let's continue in worship. This morning, enjoying God's presence and God's glory in the company of the saints as we offer our worship to Christ who is worthy, as we gather around this table which Christ has laid for us as one unified body, as we commemorate the Last Supper at which Jesus prayed to His Father, glorify your Son so that the Son might glorify you. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would add your blessing to the proclamation of your word. May we be not just hearers, but doers of your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.